good evening, good afternoon, magandang gabi, uh, magandang hapon sa inyong lahat. Good evening to all our viewers in the Philippines and good afternoon here in uh, the United Arab Emirates. I'm uh, Rudy Pineda, your regular host. Welcome to another episode of our The New and Living Way podcast. And I would like to greet uh, all our viewers via Facebook and also in YouTube. And also I would like to greet our podcast, audio podcast uh, hearers in around the world, like the United States, uh, Ireland, uh, here in the United Arab Emirates, in Japan, and other places uh, around the world. So today uh, is an exciting episode for our podcast since uh, today we are we invited a special resource speaker from uh, the United States of America. And as you can see in our Facebook uh, page, uh, uh, he's from the United States, but originally uh, he's from uh, United Kingdom in Scotland. So I would like to welcome, it's a privilege to welcome uh, brother John Harley, John, sorry, John Angus Harley in the studio. Uh, welcome, brother. Welcome. Brother, brother Angus. Uh, is our resource speaker uh, for today. Uh, he's in uh, Pennsylvania, USA at the moment. What time? What time there, uh, Brother John? 7.10. In the morning? Yeah. Wow. Here's my so, coffee. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, uh, Brother John, uh, can you introduce yourself uh, a little bit about your, your background, your your uh, Christian background and ministry uh, at the moment there in the United States. Which church you are right now? What's your ministry like that? Yes, um, I'm from Scotland in the UK. Uh, I was brought up in a Roman Catholic background. And that's a big deal in Scotland because... Uh, if you're a Roman Catholic, you're in a minority and you have to fight physically. Uh, it's, a, it's a hard thing to be a Roman Catholic in Scotland. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> But I grew up out of it because it never provided any spiritual uh, sustenance for me as I got older. Mm -hmm. I was going through a time of trial. The Lord was convicting me of my sin. And I, I went back looking closely at the Roman Catholic Church, but couldn't get anything from it. I went back to their services. They were empty like a tomb. Mm -hmm. And by that time, uh, my mother was an evangelical Christian. And I just spoke to her about my situation. I felt that life was worthless and uh, there was no point to it. Mm -hmm. And she pointed me to an evangelical preacher. 
mm-hmm. who lived in a, a different city. So I went to visit with him, and he shared with me John 3.16. Wow. First person ever to do it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't happen much in Scotland, even back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard the gospel, and I was mm-hmm. converted. I, I knew straight away the Lord was my saviour. I, I could mm-hmm. feel his presence in the room. My burden of sin was removed straight away. I felt light as a feather and delirious in the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, I just knew that there was eternal life. I knew that Jesus and what the preacher had described was the real deal, mm-hmm. that Jesus was alive. Mm-hmm. And so much so in contrast to my dark, empty Roman Catholic past. Mm. I got home from that city and my dad, who was a Roman Catholic, was really annoyed. (laughs) Uh, In fact, he was furious. My older Mm. brother cut me off for life. So, um, yeah, I lost all my friends, every single one of them, overnight. Mm. Lost them. Yeah. Everybody abandoned me straight away. <laughs> oh. I'm a crazy guy now. So uh-huh. I, I stopped drinking alcohol, which is a huge deal in Scotland. Uh, cursing, swearing, all the rest of it. Mm. So overnight there was a radical transformation. And it freaked people out, so they kept apart from me. They liked their sin too much, and now mm. I hated it. So I was on a different path, and I got put in contact with an evangelical church, a Baptist, Calvinistic church. Mm. It, it wasn't Baptist in the Reformed confessional sense, uh, or Calvinist in that sense, but it was uh, Baptist and Calvinistic. And... Um, mm. He, he was a great pastor who shepherded me and he recognized that I had certain gifts and he sent me off to Bible college. Mm. Uh, it was a small affair to begin with, a small college in England. Then I moved to a bigger one in Wales in the uh, United Kingdom, a different country. Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> in conjunction with the the University of Wales, which is the main uh, prestigious university in the in Wales itself, mm-hmm. I did my PhD. Mm. Uh, so, and I did it on basically comparing and contrasting uh, John Murray, the theologian, the Scottish theologian, with John yeah. Calvin on the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, as the theologians call it. Yeah. So I was comparing and contrasting them. And it was a time of experiment for me. I wasn't writing a future book. I was at that time uh, really developing some kind of hybrid of systematic theology and biblical theology. Mm -hmm. And I was experimenting through comparing and contrasting these two men, particularly John Murray, because John Murray was the guy who had the biblical theology background. Yeah. And um, from Westminster, right? From Westminster. Yeah, he, he was from Westminster Theological yeah. Seminary. He was one yeah. of the founding fathers of it. 
and yeah, he he was he was the theologian of his day. Yeah, he wrote the uh, the premium right. commentary on Romans that dominated for about thirty years. That was John Murray before Douglas Moo, before Douglas Moo and his commentary. There was John Murray and his commentary on Romans, and that dominated for about thirty years. He was the man, yeah. John Murray. He, back in the day, he was the I have premium. Yeah, he was the top guy. So I did my PhD on him. Um, oh, I see. Yeah. I have I have uh, collected writings of John Murray. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we in the Philippines, uh, we pronounce Murray like Murray. <laughs> oh, but, Murray. Uh, <laughs> Murray. So I have a collected writings. I also learned from him a lot of... Uh, in his book, uh, in, you know, the collected writings. And, yeah. uh, you know, our, our background, uh, Ray, Ray, you know, Ray Sebeses and me are, we came from uh, Reformed Baptist background. So John Murray is one, uh, one towering theologian that we studied uh, in, that, in yeah. that background. So, Sorry. yeah, yeah uh, good to hear that uh, Brother John, uh, before you start with uh, your episode, before we start with your episode, we'd like to greet first our early viewers. Usually we greet or before we do the proper podcast proper. Uh, we have now here, I'll just show Ryan Ermak. Uh, he, he tagged those, uh, you know, Leonard, Paul, Paul, examine mm -hmm. Henry. Ed Srilon. Ryan Ermak is uh, uh, co-elder, co-elder of uh, Leonard Castaneda. You know Leonard, right? They sure. are also in the group. They are also in the group uh, in uh, NCT Tambayan group. Uh, here is Leonard. Leonard is watching. <laughs> Hi, J. Angus Harley. Uh, How are you doing, so brother? Ryan Ermak. Maayong gabi. This is... Uh, it's uh, the, the dialect is uh, Cebuano or Bisaya. Uh, the, the dialect there in Cebu in the south. In the south. So, Maayong Gabi is uh, good evening uh, for your Maayong Gabi. Maayong Gabi, yeah. Leonard, Leonard, uh, greet me. Maayong Gabi, Leonard. <laughs> So we will just we will uh, we will start now. Without further ado, we will start the episode uh, for today. Episode we are in uh, episode fifteen. Uh, this is a quite exciting episode, and it's a bit uh, for me. It's uh, it's controversial, <laughs> right, Andrew John? Our episode today uh, entitled. Uh, episode we are now in episode 15 uh jesus the son jesus son of liberty a critic of the doctrine of imputed active allegiance before we go to your 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 thesis your your paper uh can we can we define what is uh, imputed active allegiance brother or for those who are not so keen in the theological terms, this is quite a heavy, heavy term. 
as in uh, what is this imputed active obedience? Well, the theologians say that because mankind has broken God's law, mm -hmm. Jesus had to come and keep God's law, specifically the law of Moses, Amen. which was a kind of bigger version of the law supposedly given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. And if Jesus kept that law perfectly, uh, according to the standards of the old covenant given to Moses in Mount Sinai, with all those rules and regulations, if he kept it perfectly for his people, then he would uh, accomplish righteousness for them, and it would mm -hmm. be given to them or imputed. Um, and that was his lifestyle, his life from the moment he was born up into the cross. This is the mm -hmm. active obedience. He was active in accomplishing righteousness through perfect obedience to the law of Moses. The mm -hmm. flip side of the coin is called passive obedience, and it's his death on the cross mm -hmm. uh, because those whom he uh, lived for well, he has to die for them to pay for their sin. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have active obedience, which is keeping the law of God perfectly and every mm -hmm. commandment. And you have passive obedience, which is Jesus dying and suffering on the cross to pay for their sin. Those two combined give you the doctrine of uh, imputed righteousness. Righteousness. Yeah. Imputed righteousness. So we are dealing here with the... Reform, reform theology uh, dichotomize the active and the passive, which means the what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Uh, they said that it's passive, meaning he, he never perfectly. There is no relation with the with the active. So now uh, you are critiquing this uh, this doctrine, reform doctrine of imputed active obedience. And I understand that uh, John Murray also believed this, right? The yes, one you, he was a, he was a big uh, proponent of yeah. it. Yeah. So, so uh, for our viewers, as you hear, uh, this is quite uh, a quite difficult uh, subject to deal with because even in uh, in New Covenant uh, theology circle, there are no one says with this uh, with this view, right, uh, John? Um, very few people would agree with me, uh, but that's okay. Mm. That's all right. That's all right, because uh, I understand that uh, within within the New Covenant theology circles, there are those who still hold this uh, imputed yes. active obedience. Yes, yeah. just, it, it, just to be fair, just to be fair yeah. with. Yeah. yeah, but my, my view is definitely the minority view, but it's growing. I believe in the in NCT ports uh, growing uh, in in NC port in, in NCT port. This uh, view is growing, right? In NCT yes. ports. Yeah, and but I to, tend to yeah yeah go ahead. It, it, it is there are other theologians from different groups who have been nibbling away at the same concept. Uh, oh. They're, they're, they're like halfway between me and uh, right. the old view. Yeah. 
Okay, without uh, without further ado, uh, I'll give you the the floor to to explain your thesis, your exegesis uh, of this uh, critique. Uh, okay. you, yeah, go ahead. Thank you, brother. Hello, PH Philippines. Yeah. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, my thesis is that Jesus did not come to restore the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant system by keeping its law perfectly, because to keep uh, the Old Covenant, what was necessary was to do the law perfectly. The Old Covenant and the law were a unity and could not be uh, broken from one another. But we know that the law was broken. And we know that the covenant, the old covenant was broken. It was busted. Uh, that's why we call it an old covenant. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore the way of the law does not work because the way of the old covenant does not work. So Jesus had to come for a different reason, not to keep the Mosaic law, which represented a busted covenant, but he came to keep the will of the Father. Hmm. He came to keep uh, his people from the curse of the law because the law was broken. In other words, you're dealing with a busted law that has to one has to pay the penalty for it, that's Jesus. And he had to procure for them a, a righteousness that was based on a will outside of the Mosaic law. Because the Mosaic law failed, because it represented a fallen covenant. And that brings us to the new covenant, where God gives to Jesus his plan and will, and he executes it, as we see in the New Testament itself. So Jesus did not come to keep the old covenant. He came to put it to the side and to obey God the Father's new covenant will. It's as simple as that. Um, now, the presentation I'm going to give to you is a theological rather than an exegetical presentation. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's a bit like a shotgun effect. I'm giving you a widespread because a lot of people will not be too familiar. And I want to give an introduction to the problem rather than a, an exegetical sniper uh, version of it, which is more in-depth, a few passages. So I'm giving mm -hmm. you a broad theological presentation. The order will be the Old Testament evidence, then the New Testament epistles, and then finally the Gospels. Um, and I hope it will become clear why I do it that way uh, as the 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 march proceed. So the Old Testament evidence, the first point I want to make is that the Old Testament describes the Old Covenant, the Law, the Ten Commandments, and Israel as a unit, as standing mm -hmm. or falling together. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the, the Three Musketeers. Tripartite. The tripartite division of the Law. No, no. The, it, the, it's, uh, it, the three musketeers were um, 
soldiers ah, born. The story, the story. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah sure, sure, yeah. Three French royal guards, swordsmen, who uh, had a saying, and their saying was, all for one, one for one all. One for all, yeah. So they, in other words, they all were united and stood together, and if they got defeated, they got defeated together. Yeah. All yeah. for one, one for all. One for all. There was added a fourth musketeer. So there really was four musketeers. And that's <laughs> what we've got uh, in the Old Covenant. We have the four musketeers. We have the we have the Old Covenant itself, number one. We have the Law, number two. We have the Ten Commandments, number three. And we have the Nation of Israel, number four. The four mm. musketeers all stand or fall together. If one falls, they all fall. If one succeeds, they all succeed. Mm -hmm. We know the law failed. The old covenant failed. We know Israel failed. And we also know the Ten Commandments failed. All of them failed. And this is what I'm trying to show in this section of the Old Testament evidence that mm -hmm. uh, the four were one and they all failed. So let's look at some of the, the ideas. Um, the, the Mosaic Law, when it was given, it was given in the context of the creation of the Old Covenant. So when Moses was given uh, a command to write down a law, it was in the context of creating a covenant, which, which we call the Old Covenant. Mm. So the two of them are inseparable right from the beginning. Um <clears throat> The next point is Israel were to keep God's covenant by obeying his voice, meaning his law. If you turn to Exodus 19.5, uh, and some of these verses I'm going to have to read, sorry. <laughs> I can read it uh, if you want. Uh, yes, I have, uh, yeah, Exodus uh, what? 19.5. Exodus 19.5. I will uh, share in the screen the Bible. Yeah. You want me to read? Yeah, you go ahead and read. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Exodus 19, verse 5. Yes. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Right, so there you see three of the, 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 the musketeers, three of the components. You have the law obeying God's voice. You have Israel. And then you have covenant, the three of the musketeers, standing or falling together, if you will, if you will, then this will come to pass. Um, so the book of the law of Moses is therefore called the equivalent of the book of the covenant. And if you turn to Exodus 24, verse 7, Exodus 24, 24, 7, you will, you will find there that the book of the law of Moses 
equates to is the same as the Book of the Covenant. Okay. Yeah, I'll read that. Uh, then he then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, "All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient." And this is after the giving of the law. This was the law that was given, and the law is called is equated with what is called the book of the covenant. They're the same thing. Mm -hmm. The law and the book of the covenant are one and the same thing. Uh, <clears throat> so that brings us to another point showing the unity between the four musketeers is that the writings on the tablets containing the Ten Commandments express the covenant. Uh, so if you go to Exodus chapter 34, verse 28, Exodus 34, 28, here we see the unity between the Ten Commandments and the covenant. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so he was there with the Lord 40 days, 40 nights, and he neither eat bread nor neither drink, drank water, and he wrote in the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. So the Ten Commandments are a covenant word, and they were, of course, were at the heart of the law. So <clears throat> what is emerging is very clearly a picture of concentric circles, circles that are narrowing. So you start off with the old covenant, the big circle, then a moderate circle of the law, then a smaller circle again of the Ten Commandments, then inside of that you've got Israel. Mm -hmm. And all of them are bound together. You cannot separate them. If one stands, they all stand. If one falls, they all fall. So then we find that uh, to disobey the Ten Commandments or the law was to break the covenant. And if you go to Leviticus 26.15, we get that idea. Leviticus Yes, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant. So there we have the old covenant in uh, a summary form. You've got to keep all the rules, all the commandments to keep the covenant. That's what Jesus was supposedly doing. And I would argue that he was doing nothing of the sort, but that is the old covenant uh, message. You've got to keep all the statutes and rules, all of them, according to as they're taught by Moses, not as they're taught by Jesus, but as they're taught by Moses, you must keep them in order to keep the covenant. If you break mm -hmm. even one of them, you break the covenant. And of course, Israel broke them all the time. And it was only God's long suffering that he bore with them until uh, the new covenant was hatched and we had the coming of the Messiah. Um, <clears throat> we also know that the law was placed in the ark. 
of the covenant. This again is no mistake. The law and the covenant are two of the musketeers. And we also know from the book of Deuteronomy that the law contained the blessings and curses of the covenant. De Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Uh, you see the blessings and then you see the curses. Maybe we could have a quick look at just a, an overview of Deuteronomy 27 and 28. You have the curses and then the, the blessings. Yeah. And <clears throat> that's, that's what happens when you keep the law. And all these blessings were to do with Israel in the land of Israel, what we call the promised land. Mm -hmm. Nothing to do with heaven, nothing to do with what we call today spiritual blessings. They are blessings of the physical body in cities, in, in their farming, and all the things they do with their hands. It was an external covenant. It was a covenant made in stone made for the flesh and therefore the curses and the blessings that they experienced were curses and blessings to do with physical living in this world physical life in the promised land or exile from the promised land so it was all very physical nothing to do with what we call heavenly spiritual internal blessings the old covenant was a fleshly, external, touchable, literally touchable uh, covenant that appealed to the senses of the flesh. You could see the tabernacle. You could smell the, the, the blood. You could, you could smell the incense. You could see the beauty of the tabernacle and so on and so forth. It was all very much so to do with the human body and the human senses, and it was an external covenant, which Israel broke literally on day one when they worshipped the golden calf uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And um, that's the, the event I want to come to now. Israel breaks the law, Exodus 31. So if we could come to Israel uh, and Exodus 31 verse 19. If we could get that verse up, that would be nice. Exodus 31? Yes, verse 19. Only up to 18. No, just verse 19. Ju just verse 19. 31 is up to 18 only, as oh, you can okay. see there. Oh, 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 did I get the wrong? Maybe it's verse 18 then. Yeah. Where he smashes the top. Did I write 19? Yeah, it's yeah. there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 3118 it must be then. Yeah. That's that's there in the screen, you can see. Yeah. Okay, um, let's see. All right, and he gave to Moses, when you finished speaking, the two tablets of testimony, the tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Yes, that's the point. So we see that the, the, the will of God is written on the two tablets. It's called the testimony. It's a witness to Israel. And uh, we know that when Israel broke the law, uh, Moses got angry. He came down the mountain and he smashed the two tablets. That wasn't just a temper tantrum. That was him saying, 
the, the, that was effectively saying the covenant was broken. And he, he showed uh, the, the holy contempt for Israel's actions by showing that the covenant had been broken by Israel. So he smashed the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, the commandments of the covenant. And that was no mistake. Uh, Moses was God's representative. And uh, he represented the anger of God snapping into the covenant, smashing to smithereens the covenant. On day one, the very first day, it was a, a ruined covenant. So <laughs> God is very patient. Uh, he was dealing with mm -hmm. the people who could never keep that covenant and never did keep the covenant. It was a broken covenant right from the beginning. It was never going to work. Why? Because it was off the flesh. It was in stone. It couldn't produce life. It had no spiritual power whatsoever. It couldn't do anything spiritual. It was stone. It was the human body. It was land. It was a tabernacle made of material, human material. It was all these things to do with this world, things that cannot produce life of the next world. Um, and God's reaction in Exodus uh, 32, sorry, that was Exodus 32, 19, Exodus chapter 32, 19, uh, sorry, 32, 10. God's reaction in Exodus 32, 10 is that he was going to make a new nation from Moses. So God's response is to say, well, stuff that, if Israel is not going to keep my covenant, I'm going to create a new covenant people from Moses. New people equals a new covenant. And verse 13 teaches us that uh, Moses pleaded as the mediator with uh, Yahweh for that not to happen, not on the basis of the old covenant, because he understood it was broken. And I repeat that, not on the basis of the old covenant, because he understood it was broken. Moses showed us the way ahead. He said he was effectively telling us that any future for Israel was not based on the old covenant. So he prays on the basis of the covenant made with the fathers, the Abrahamic covenant. The way ahead is the Abrahamic covenant. And on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant alone, God spares Israel. I wish the dispensationalists would listen to this. Because <laughs> it's a fundamental point that they miss. I wish the covenant theology folks would understand this because there is no resolution or solution found in the Mosaic law itself. The way is pointed ahead, in other words, by the Abrahamic covenant alone. Only that points towards the true solution, which we come to in the new covenant. So the second point of the Old Testament witness, the second half uh, of this the Old Testament evidence, is that the Old Testament's witness was the exclusive counter solution to the its view of the exclusive counter solution to the Old Covenant was the New Covenant. In other words, the Abrahamic Covenant was pointing towards the need of a new covenant. The broken old covenant pointed towards a new covenant.
but the Abrahamic covenant also, because it was uh, itself independent of the old covenant, was telling us that something greater was necessary. And that's why everything, when, you, when we come to the prophets, the, uh, the writings outside of the Pentateuch, that's what I mean by the prophets, that's when we get the idea of a new covenant and a new law that um, is in some ways very similar to the old covenant and the old law, and there's a reason for that, but is rooted in the covenant with the fathers and is not going to be broken. It cannot be broken because it's a different kind of covenant. And we're going to get to that in a moment about the different kind of covenant that it really was. Uh, so when you read verses like Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 10, uh, and so on, there's a whole list there of what the old covenant, how the old covenant failed and what the new covenant will look like. And it's going to be something different to the old way. So, for example, if you were to go into Ezekiel, the end of Ezekiel, although the term law is used, although you've got um, reference to, references to sacrifices, what you will find very quickly, if you're observant, is that these things that Ezekiel speaks of, all these sacrifices, the temple, are vastly different to how Moses records them. Remember, the doctrine of the act of obedience of Jesus is entirely dependent upon keeping Moses' law very strictly. And yet the counter solution to breaking the old covenant is a law and a series of commandments that on the surface look similar to the law of Moses, but they are vastly different. Because many of the sacrifices that are mentioned, say, in Ezekiel, are not recorded in uh, the book of Moses. The idea of the temple, for example, in Ezekiel, although it's similar outwardly to the tabernacle and temple of both the wilderness and Solomonic periods, is vastly different. For example, it has a river running through it. That's a vastly different kind of temple. So although you've got a shadowing effect that is given by the original law of Moses, it's kind of similar to the new law that will come to pass. It is nevertheless a vastly, distinctly different kind of law with all its accoutrements, all of its content that is going to be there in this new covenant era. So the language is similar, but the content is vastly different. Yes, we can talk about a new law, but this new law is going to be from a different planet. Yes, we can talk about a covenant, but this new covenant is going to be from a different planet. There's going to be similarities in language but in, and in ideology, but the content is going to be from a different world altogether. And that's why Ezekiel in particular, but other books give this kind of almost bewildering contrast you don't know whether you're coming or going is it the mosaic law isn't it the mosaic law well that's because he's using the old imagery to depict something that just blows the mind so that's really what we get 
in the prophets. So the, the key text is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. If you could bring that up, brother, I would be, I would be grateful. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Uh, do you have them there? Hello? Hello? All right. <laughs> Sorry. I'm making uh, I'm making you the solo screen, so I'm uh, removing myself to concentrate. There, there, the. I, I beg your pardon. I, you're doing a fantastic job, and I have no idea what goes on being the the presenter slash engineer slash everything. Yeah, <laughs> uh, thank you so much, brother. Yeah. Um, there, the new covenant text. text uh, yes. Jeremiah. What, what, let me let me read that for the audience. The, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, although I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put within them and I will write I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each uh, one teach his neighbor and his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more uh, just a very superficial interpretation of that puts the new covenant in a different league to the old covenant. The old covenant had no immediate remedy for sin, had no immediate remedy for internal knowledge. It had nothing for these things. Um, the key to reading this passage, as in all of the prophets, is to understand that Israel was put into exile for breaking the old covenant. Israel, northern Israel, the kingdom of northern Israel, had been flung into Assyria many years before. Uh, and Judah was about to uh, be flung into Babylon for its disobedience to God's law. And the prophets are telling uh, Israel about these things, but they're also teaching that there's going to come a restoration where the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom Israel and Judah are going to be restored by God under what's called the new covenant. So the return to the land is equates with the beginning of the new covenant. Now we know from experience that when Israel returned to the land from Judah, um, it wasn't exactly uh, a time of uh, uh, of paradise, there's no new covenant things being uh, recorded. Yes, they come back from uh, Israel, but Israel is still in a mess. They come back with wives from uh, foreign nations. They're not keeping the Sabbaths. Uh, that the story of Nehemiah right there and Ezra put together. Israel was still a mess. The Israel was still disobedient and. Uh, and so on and so forth. So the conditions or the terms of the new covenant 
Although they are put in the language of the return from exile to the promised land, the promises are never really fulfilled in all of the for all of those spiritual blessings that we read about. They, they just weren't fulfilled. So we see then that the language given to the prophets, including Jeremiah, is what we call prophetic language. It's language that uses familiar everyday concepts such as law, covenant, and gives them a vastly different meaning to what anybody in Israel could have conceived. Um, after all, they had to, uh, God had to speak to them using familiar language. He couldn't, for example, give to them language that came from the book of Revelation chapter 20, a revelation that belonged to a different century and a different people. He had to give them familiar language to convey something from a different world. And that was vastly um, difficult for the Israelites to understand. They were hearing things that were similar, yet totally different. So the idea of returning from the land, from exile, that sounded kind of familiar. They could get that. It's about going into the land. But then again, the blessings were from a different planet. The idea of the law being on the heart, that's unknown to them. It was on tablets of stone. The idea of forgiveness, real forgiveness, not through animal sacrifices, but immediate forgiveness. The idea of knowing God without needing Moses or his law or the priest to teach you how to do the ABCs of the kindergarten uh, law of God. You don't need that anymore. Everybody knows the Lord internally in their hearts because the law of God that belongs to the new covenant has been written on the heart. Not written on stone, but written on the heart. So that means then that the four musketeers have a new look to them. They have a spiritual look to them. God has a spiritual wife called Israel. Israel went in as a wife of the flesh that was disobedient, but it comes into the new covenant as a wife that is spiritual. And this wife um, <clears throat> has the law written on her heart, or Israel has the law written on their heart, Israel being the wife. It's a spiritual law, internal, not written on stone, and immediately you know who Christ is. When I was converted, I knew the Lord straight away. I wasn't learning it from books like I had from Roman Catholicism. I just knew it. I knew it. I knew that what the preacher said, I experienced it within me. Forgiveness, I experienced it within me. I didn't just hear it. I wasn't merely taught it. I knew it. So I didn't need anybody to convince me I didn't need a teacher. I knew. And that's because the Spirit of God wrote God's salvation right there on my heart. And Christ came to live within me, as the old way of putting it was. So that's the spiritual internal covenant. <clears throat> it's got nothing to do with the law of Moses. The new covenant is the sole counter-solution to the old covenant. It's the only thing that the prophets recognize. So that the law, the Ten Commandments, uh, and Israel, they stood or fell, they fell together, and they fell again and again and again, and the new covenant was therefore required. 
It was the sole counter solution to the old covenant. And um, <clears throat> we see that the Messiah represented that same model. And I'm not going to go in any depth to this, other than if you read Isaiah 42, 6, 49, 8, there uh, the Messiah is called the servant of the Lord. And it's said of him that God, Yahweh, gives to Israel the servant as a covenant. And that's in the context of a new covenant. So let me make that very simple. The Messiah comes as a covenant. He embodies a covenant. Which covenant? It's the new covenant. It's exclusively the new covenant. That's why it comes in the prophetic period of it and the imagery of the exile and return. The one who will save Israel is at some points called a servant, at some points called the branch, the Messiah, and all those names that we are familiar with. And he is the one who will fulfill the new covenant in contradistinction, in complete distinction to the old covenant. The Messiah will have nothing to do with the old covenant. That is the Old Testament evidence. And I'll end that section right there. I'm just wondering, do you have any questions about that section? Mm, no, it's very clear. It's very All excellent. Right. We yeah. come to the, let's go straight on to the evidence of the epistles. I'll try to be, I want you to take my time with the Old Testament because... The critique of dispensationalism and covenant theology is always this. They always complain and say, New covenant theology doesn't have any Old Testament evidence in and by itself. Mm. Well, we do. We have a lot of it. In fact, we have the real evidence compared to them. So that's why I took a lot longer on that section than I will on the rest. Okay, you have the evidence of the epistles. Again, the main idea is that the witness of the New Testament epistles is that the New Covenant is the exclusive counter-solution to the Old Covenant and its law. In other words, when you come to the, uh, the writings outside of the Gospels, the epistles within the New Testament, whenever they talk about the Old Covenant, its solution, the counter-solution to it, the thing that solves the problem is the New Covenant alone not the Old Covenant. And every time that the New Covenant is mentioned, Jesus is mentioned. But Jesus is never, ever, ever in the epistles associated with the Old Covenant. Not once. So why, or oh why, or oh why do we still insist in saying that Jesus came to keep the Mosaic Law, which was to keep the Old Covenant? Instead, he's keeping the New Covenant and he does that by going to the cross and dying. It's as simple as that. Uh, and so you've got a bunch of verses that corroborate the difference between the old covenant law of Moses and the new covenant law. You've got Romans chapter 2, verse 12 to 16. Uh, a bunch of verses in Romans, Second uh, Corinthians 3, Galatians 4, and the whole book of Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews is screaming out the duality of the covenants, the old versus the new. And every time the old is stated, 
It's associated with the old covenant characters like Moses, the priests, and so on. But whenever the new is stated, it's associated directly and only with Jesus Christ. Uh, and you get those contrasts in the book of Hebrews uh, about the covenant in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, and so on. And I don't want to go into them because we're all familiar with that. And I know you guys have already covered that. But that's, uh, yeah, the counter, the sole and exclusive counter solution to the new covenant is, uh, to the old covenant, is the new covenant. Nothing else. Um, <clears throat> But one passage I would to quick, if you could bring up, brother, Second uh, Corinthians 3. I just want to have a quick look at that. I don't want to spend much time in it. As I said before, I don't want to uh, go into too much detail in this section. But if you could bring up Second Corinthians 3, we could just have a quick look at that. I would be grateful. Right, so in 2 Corinthians 3, we have an example of this contrast between the two covenants, where I have said that the new covenant is the exclusive answer to the old covenant. And Jesus is never associated with the old covenant, but only with the new covenant. This is the passage above all the others. If you want a condensed version of the book of Hebrews, uh, 2 Corinthians 3 gives you that condensed version. And if you read it, it goes all the way down. You see the verses there that refer to Moses, verse 7. Uh, now, if the ministry of death, carved in letter, yeah, came with such glory that Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory which was being brought to an end. There it's right there. There's the old covenant. It's telling you that the old covenant is being brought to an end. Does it then say, that Jesus took up the same broken old covenant and obeyed the law, and the old covenant was kind of uh, the law was kind of magnified all over again. The law of Moses, and uh, you know, we're going to get the the old way. Nothing of the sort. We don't get that. Instead, uh, we get the 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 language of uh, the spirit. We get the language of the hardness of Israel being removed through faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. I mean, it cannot be any more clear. The, the glory of the new covenant far exceeds the glory of the old covenant in Moses alone. Not in Jesus, but in Moses. And I say to my covenant theology brothers, my dispensationalist brothers, I say to my progressive covenantalist brothers, I say to my brothers in New Covenant Theology, what, which mediator, mediator are you following? Because the mediator that most believe in is one that is just a better version of Moses, who keeps the law. I'm sorry, I don't follow that mediator. I follow the New Covenant mediator, whose glory far surpasses the, the glory of Moses, that they cannot even be compared, and whose glory is not based on law, it's based on doing the will of the Father by going to the cross and dying. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 3 right there. Uh, if, if you could bring up also, brother, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Romans 3, 21 to 26. And this is another, I'm giving this again because it's another condensed version, a smaller version again 
that uh, if you're ever looking for the contrast between the two covenants in a in a more limited version, you have it right here. Shall I shall I read it? There's some kind of weird stuff going on right now. <laughs> uh, I can't, I can't hear you, brother, because there's some kind of interference. Um, I'm going to read those verses. Hopefully you can hear me your end. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ah, there we go. There we go. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show that righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So there is no righteousness through the law. Instead, there is righteousness through the death of Christ, who dies for those who broke the law, the old covenant saints, um, and, and for the future, for those who are sinners, uh, all the Gentiles who would come to him. It's right there. Uh, he is categorized with uh, his death on the cross alone. He's not categorized with Moses and keeping the law. Again, why do we keep insisting on that? It's nowhere to be found in the epistles. If you search high and low in the epistles, you will not find any language that refers to Jesus coming to keep the law. Now, I know there's objections to that. I'll get, if we have time, I'll get to them later, but uh, there is no evidence there for it. So both the Old Testament and the New Testament epistles testify that the sole counter solution to the old covenant was the new covenant. There's no room for the notion that the Messiah figure of the Old Testament or the Christ of the epistles came to obey the Mosaic law perfectly to help create righteousness for God's people. There's no evidence. Which brings us to the Gospels. And um, again, I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time here. My book that I wrote recently is about the Gospels alone. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, the evidence of the Gospels is 
that Jesus understood his mission to have nothing to do with the old covenant, not a thing. He tells us what his mission is, uh, to preach the gospel of salvation, to seek and to save the lost, to be a light, to serve and die on the cross as a ransom, to fulfill all righteousness, to bring a sword and divide families, to save the sick and sinners, to give eternal life, to be the way, the truth, and the life, to heal the sick, and so on and so on and so on. So again, I ask my brothers who dispute my point of view, where in the Gospels do we read anything coming from Jesus' lips that says, I came to keep the law of Moses? Where is it? Where is this teaching? And so they take us to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. Brother, could you bring up those verses? Yes. Right, I'll read them. Do not think when I have come to that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, I hope to write a book on this section at some point and give a, a more detailed exegesis. So I'm only going to give, um, I'm going to I'm going to come back to this text later, but I just want to give a few simple comments. Uh, the law there is not the Mosaic law. The law is the Pentateuch. This is, it's got nothing to do with the Mosaic law. Because we see the word commandments, we automatically think that it's referring to the Mosaic commandments. It isn't. It's referring to um, the commandments of God in a generic, general sense. We know that because at the end of Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus is speaking uh, to... Um, the people who are there with him on the mount, and uh, he he talks about loving your neighbor, loving your neighbor, loving God, because on them hang the law and the prophets. He says, so the the commandments to love one's neighbor, to love uh, God, summarize the whole of the Old Testament. They are not merely associated with the Mosaic law. Uh, they're associated with the, the law as in the Pentateuch, first five books of Moses, and the prophets. And in that sense, it, the, these are commandments that are supra, not super, but supra, meaning they are from, they are commandments that exist above and beyond the Mosaic commandments themselves, because they are throughout the Old Testament. Whenever Jesus gets into a skirmish or a clash with the Pharisees, he's always appealing to uh, virtues and teaching that are standing outside of the Mosaic law itself. 
One of his favorite texts is Hosea verse six, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 6. The Lord desires mercy and not sacrifice. Well, if, if Jesus is really a man of the law, why is he appealing always to the prophets? Why doesn't he just go to Moses' law? Uh, and so <clears throat> I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. So when Jesus is doing his thing, when he's preaching, he what he is doing is introducing the new covenant and he's replacing the old covenant. This has to be done carefully, tactfully, but he, he has to do it. There's no way of doing it except doing it. Uh, so remember, he is the one who was given to Israel as a covenant. He literally embodies the new covenant. So everything from the moment of his incarnation right through to his death and resurrection reflected a new covenant way. It had nothing to do with the old covenant because he came to replace it. The old covenant failed and he embodied in himself the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. So in his actual ministry, we see new covenant ministry, not old covenant ministry, not keeping the law of Moses, but keeping his father's will, a will that eventually leads him to the cross. So we read of Jesus breaking the law, continuously breaking the law. For example, he breaks the Sabbath, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, John 5, 18. He touches lepers, which breaks the Mosaic law. He never goes into quarantine. My goodness, today we know all about quarantine. We've been stuck in our houses for how long? Businesses have been closed down. Do you ever read of Jesus having touched someone who's unclean? Do you ever read of him going into quarantine? And yet the Mosaic law is full of passages and teaching about the necessity of going into quarantine. He ignores it. And where in the Mosaic law can, Mosaic law can we go to say that uh, you have permission to go and minister to the Gentiles? The unclean Gentiles. Which law? Which commandment of Moses? Which commandment of Moses gives a man the right to die on the cross? Which commandment? And we could go on and on and on and on looking for commandments uh, in Mo Moses' law that, that somehow do they compare to what Jesus did? By no means. You can, you can look upside into the Mosaic Law all day, turn it upside down, inside out, and the life of Jesus, you will find very few commandments that can be compared to the life of Jesus. Very, very few. He's living a life that's on a different plane, a different world compared to the Old Covenant and its strict, unbreakable law. So if Jesus did come to keep the law of Moses, why is he not in quarantine? Why does he break the Sabbath? Why does his disciples break the Sabbath? Why does he himself talk about a new commandment? John chapter 13, verse 34. Uh, could you bring that verse up, brother? John 13, 34.
a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Typically, covenant theology, dispensational, dispensationalism tell us it's not a new commandment because it was given in the Old Testament. I, I'm saying this, it's an absolute brand new commandment. Why? Because it belongs to a new covenant. What Jesus does is that he takes uh, the, the, principles, the, the principles of mercy and virtue that are there in the Old Testament. Remember, it's the law and the prophets. And he uses them as the basis for his new covenant ethic. And they are wholly fulfilled in him. In other words, he doesn't just give commandments to disciples. He himself has to put them through the sieve or the grid of the cross. In other words, all of the commandments of the new covenant are embodied in Jesus in his death on the cross. For example, the commandment to love God and love your neighbor. What better example of those two commandments than to die on the cross for sinners? Now, we can see a connection between the idea of love and the old covenant because they're told to love God. But the way love is conveyed in the new covenant is again from that different planet. Jesus takes the Old Testament idea of love and he lifts it up to give it a, a brand new meaning and content that is centered upon the cross. The whole of Jesus' ministry on earth was a cross-centered ministry. Everything he did was building up to the cross. Not keeping Moses' law, but preparing for the cross itself. He was wrestling with sin, wrestling with the law, wrestling with Satan. All the forces that held mankind in bondage, he's wrestling with them, battling with them in the trenches until finally he comes to the, the greatest battle of all, the cross. And that's where he snaps them into and ends their dominion. But he's been doing that from the moment he, he was incarnated, from the moment his ministry began, he was wrestling with them. He was breaking the law. He was casting aside the law. He did, he did touch the lepers. He spat in the face of a man. Spitting on someone, it, even today, is disgusting. It certainly did violate the Mosaic law over and over and over, and yet Jesus did it. Actually spat in a man's face. And so we see that the solution to the old covenant is the new covenant alone. And Jesus embodies that new covenant message, even in his own ministry. The sole counter solution, the summary of all the evidence, the sole counter solution to the old covenant, according to the scriptures, is the new covenant alone. Jesus was never said to create or obtain righteousness by observing the law of Moses perfectly on the behalf of others. The old covenant fell, the law fell, the Ten Commandments fell, Israel fell. Jesus came to replace them all with a new covenant, a new law, a new Israel, and new commandments. So that ends the, the, the presentation of the, the main argument. There are objections. Do, do you want me to continue or shall I stop? Continue, continue, yeah. Uh, okay, so 
I've got some of the main objections. I don't have them all. And if you want more information on these things, I have written them in my book. So <clears throat> this is, again, a shotgun version, broad, straightforward, simple. Maybe right? there are many There are many more later in the Q&A. This will be the first, oh. <laughs> uh, first few. Yeah, there might oh. be some. Uh, in the in the Q and A portion, we will we will entertain uh, comments, questions regarding this uh, this topic. Okay. So just go ahead. Just go ahead. All right. Thank you. Uh, the main objection is Jesus did not break the law. That would make him a sinner. He was God, and he could not sin. Seems like a, that's a on the face of it, that's a powerful argument, except. It's based on the presupposition that Jesus came to keep the law. Now, just think about it for a second. If he didn't come to keep the law, and he's so-called breaking it all the time, he cannot be a sinner, since he did not come to keep the law. <clears throat> it's a simple sidestep. It's a, there's a very simple solution. He embodies the new covenant. He, fulf he fulfills the, the new covenant will of God. Now, is God now subordinate to Moses? Or can God create his own will that is superior to Moses? And could, could the son fulfill that superior will, yes or no? Well, the answer is yes. So he did not come to keep Moses' law. He came to keep the father's will, which was superior to Moses' law. And indeed, the idea of Jesus breaking the covenant, why are we shocked by that? Why are we shocked by the idea that Jesus broke the law? I tell you, every single moment of the day, I break the Mosaic law. Ask yourself, do you keep the Sabbath on a Saturday? Yes. That's what I want to, do you keep a Sabbath on a Saturday? No, 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 no. Do, do you, do you uh, offer sacrifices to Yahweh? No. Do you build a tabernacle to, you know, to... Perform the, the sacrificial system. And we could, be, we could go through all the Mosaic commandments. And I guarantee you, none of us are keeping them. We're breaking them all the time. You ask any Orthodox Jew, and you ask him a simple question. Do the Gentiles keep the law? His answer is quite simply, they break it all the time. So when Jesus came, he was not performing like a Jew, although he was in a Jewish context, he was behaving like a new covenant leader. So that he was using the law, a law that witnessed to him, he was using it to show that he truly was the Messiah and he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. So, for example, he goes into the temple. Why does he go into the temple? Well, why would a Jew go into the temple? A Jew goes into the temple to offer sacrifices, goes in to pray. A Jew goes into the temple to, to worship. But he's got to go through all this elaborate uh, system in order just to do some basic uh, so-called spiritual things. But why did Jesus go into the temple? Well, we hear of him in two occasions going into the temple, at least, that stick out to me anyway. There's other occasions, but two where he goes into the temple and there they are, the older Jews are teaching about whatever they were teaching. But Jesus goes in there and he starts teaching them as a boy. 
And he says, uh, and his parents are looking for him and they're going, well, you, why didn't you, uh, you know, come and tell us what you were doing? And by the way, that would be in accordance with the law of Moses. He went, Jesus went AWOL for three days. He went missing, violating mm -hmm. the commandment to honor your father and mother. And he turns around and says to his earthly parents, don't you know that I was, I should be in the temple? of my father, I should be meeting with my father. And then he was teaching what? He would be teaching the new covenant message, interacting with the rabbis on the new covenant message. That's one reason why he goes into the temple. He is not doing normal Jewish stuff. He goes into the temple again, John chapter uh, <clears throat> two, and he turns the tables upside down because they are ruining the temple, the Jews. Again, not normal Jewish stuff. And throughout John's gospel, we read about him going into the temple, and he's always preaching the gospel. Again, not normal Jewish stuff. None of the things that he did in the temple you can find in the Mosaic law. So he's using the Mosaic law to talk about a greater law, a greater will of God, and we see that specifically taught in John chapter 4, where he meets with the Samaritan woman, and he says to the Samaritan woman, you Samaritans, you don't really know what you're talking about. But then, and I'm paraphrasing, but all religion is going to be outside of uh, Jerusalem and outside of Samaria anyway, because the true worship, worshippers of God will worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus is dismissing Jerusalem, the city of the temple. He dismisses it in John chapter 4 during his ministry. Not after his ministry, but during it. He teaches essentially that the sacrificial was dead and buried, gone. So why then are we afraid to say that Jesus broke the law? He's teaching it. He's removing it. He's spitting on people's faces. Dear brothers and sisters, don't be misled by that argument because at the end of the day, he was breaking it from day one. Why? Because he was bringing in a new law and a new covenant that ran totally against the old. So that's the first objection. Uh, the second objection is from Galatians 4. It says Jesus came under the law to obey it perfectly. That's, that's what the objection says. The only problem with that is that the context of Galatians 4, 1 to 5 says nothing of the sort. You will not find anything in that context saying that Jesus came to obey the law. Not a thing. But it was said uh, he was born under the law, is it? Yes. That okay. that born yeah. under the law, but then you have to define what it means to be under the law. And to be under the law in Galatians means to be under its curse. It means to be enthralled or in bondage to the law. It doesn't mean that you now have an opportunity to keep the law in order to obtain righteousness. It means rather you are under the law snare, mastery, bondage. That's what it means because... Could you bring up Galatians 4, brother? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Galatians uh, 3, right? Oh, sorry. Uh, no, 4. 4. Ah, Galatians 4, yeah, yeah. Galatians 4.
It's uh, right, and so there we see. I, I will read that section. Yeah, I will. Yeah, I'm going to read yeah. the. I'll read the verses one to five, or six, whatever it is. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. It is telling you what under the law means. It's telling you right there in verse one that Israel cannot inherit. Israel are in bondage. They cannot receive the inheritance. That's what it means right there in verse 1. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The Gentiles, too, were in, under a form of bondage. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? What does that all mean? It means he came to redeem those who were under the law. To set them, the word redemption means to set free. free. Uh, it means to be in bondage. <clears throat> why is that language used if indeed it's all about keeping the law? Why use the language of redemption and slavery? Why are we talking in those terms? Why do we talk about receiving the adoption of sons and the spirit crying in our hearts, Abba Father, if it's all about obeying the Mosaic law? Mm -hmm. There is nothing in that context about obeying the Mosaic law. Uh, and if you turn to Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14, we get the same teaching again, but from Christ's angle in particular. What, what, what does it mean specifically for Christ to be under the law? It means this, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and, and, and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, now, Paul is telling us clearly, the law is not of faith. <laughs> so why have we got Jesus keeping the law? Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now, we should, if we did have the doctrine of active obedience of Christ, we should read something like this. Christ came to obey the Mosaic law in our place, uh, doing the law for us to remove the curse. No, that's not what we read. We read this. Christ redeemed us, again, the language of redemption, from the curse of the law. He came under the law to remove the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs in the tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. There we are told in, again, as simple language as possible, that to come under law means to come under its curse, its bondage. But in the case of Jesus, he soaks up that curse and bondage by his death on the cross. And that brings us to the Matthew 5, 17 to 20 argument again. And I just want to give a wee bit more detail than before. I'll not be too long. <clears throat> the law there is the Pentateuch. The text says the law or prophets. 
and it shows that there is a kind of equality there. Both terms are going together. And whenever you see law and prophets together, it always means in the, in, in the New Testament, it always and invariably means the Pentateuch and the rest of the Old Testament. It never, ever, ever means the Mosaic Law and the prophets. Never once. That's um, Old Testament scriptures, right? Old, it's the Old Testament scriptures. No, law and law. I actually I covered that in episode seven. Uh, right. Oh, great. Uh, yeah. So in, that's could, that's the the Old Testament scriptures, law and the prophets, law, law the or prophets. the prophets. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it came to like, fulfill as it came to fulfill the law as, uh, you know, the prescript the prescriptive and the prophetic sense of the law and the prophets. <clears throat> Plero, right? The, the yes. In, in the, the majority of times the word plereo is used by Matthew. To Prophetic, yeah. Yeah, it refers to what the prophets say. Yeah. And only this one time in the whole of Matthew is it connected with the Pentateuch. And mm -hmm. <clears throat> there, 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 are, there is a simple reason for these things because all of the events of Jesus and associated with Jesus are fulfilling or filling out the Old Testament. And there's no greater uh, shadowing or picture of what Jesus did than uh, the Mosaic uh, sacrificial system with the priests and so on. And in other words, the book of Hebrews, you could think of that. Uh, and Jesus takes all these things and absorbs them into himself and gives them their true meaning, their true heavenly meaning so that he fulfills the whole of the, the law, meaning the Pentateuch, and the prophets from beginning to end, he is the true meaning behind the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And it's got nothing at all to do with keeping the Mosaic law, not a single thing, nothing. <clears throat> now, people then say, well, what about the commandments here? Well, could you turn to uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, brother? Could you read that? Uh, could you bring that up for us? Matthew. Matthew 7. Yeah. Verse uh, 12. Yeah. There. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, the Pentateuch and the prophets. The, this is the Old Testament. It doesn't say this is the Mosaic law. It says this is the law and the prophets. Mm -hmm. In other words, the Old Testament as a whole was a witness to of a greater love that was to come in the mm -hmm. Son. A love that stepped outside of and was outside of the boundaries, the very strict rules of the Mosaic law. A love that was not impossible as the Mosaic law's love was impossible. This love is not impossible. It steps outside of the Mosaic law, belongs to the Old Testament as a whole, and is absorbed by Jesus and is embodied in his death on the cross. That cross love is then passed on as a commandment to his disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. It's a cross slash new covenant love that was only witnessed to by the Old Testament but finds its reality in life in Jesus Christ 
and that reality in life are then put into the hearts of believers through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So they live across life. The law is written in their hearts because they do exactly what Jesus does. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his Moses law and obey it. No. He says, if any man will come after me, he says, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I don't know about you. I am justified by the cross of Christ. I'm not justified by a Jesus who dies, who uh, obeys the Mosaic law. And then because I am like him, I am now a Mosaic law obeyer. Mm -mm -mm. I, am, mm. I am justified by the righteousness of Jesus, the one who obeys the Father and his new covenant will, death and the cross. It's that cross righteousness that's lived out in me in a daily basis by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the idea of uh, breaking commandments that Matthew refers to, Jesus refers to in Matthew 5, this is not the commandments of Moses' law. This is the commandments of the new covenant, especially summarized in love God and love your neighbor. Uh, and that's what it's all about. And thus, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount itself afterwards, Jesus takes the, the, some of the Mosaic commandments and he tears them to shreds. He simply removes them. He, he gives to them a messianic meaning. For example, the one in divorce. The, the commandment concerning divorce of the Old Covenant was that you could put someone away, it was the phraseology, and uh, just, just about for any... Any reason... Yeah, almost any reason. Jesus says, well, uh, no, no. Uh, Except me for fornication. I'm going to give you a new commandment about divorce. And here it is. Except for adultery, you can't get a divorce. Now, pardon me if I'm... Uh, uh, excuse me a second. To me, that seems very, very straightforward and simple. Jesus is coming with a new law, a new covenant. He is the new Moses, thus that he's giving the law on a mount, the Sermon on a Mount. And he is the greater Moses. He's coming with all the new, he's coming with the, the green new deal, <laughs> the new covenant deal. He's coming with a different message altogether. So he can lay aside the Mosaic commandments. And he does it throughout his ministry. He did it in Mark chapter seven, where he laid this chapter seven, verse 19, where it says that, uh, could you bring that verse up please? Mark chapter seven, verse 19. Right. And then at the end, part B, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus declared all foods clean during his ministry. Now, uh, ask any Jewish conservative rabbi, can you teach against the law and be keeping it? And every one of them will say you cannot teach uh, you cannot be said to be keeping the law if you're saying that parts of it don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. 
pretty straightforward. Uh, Jesus is talking about keeping his law, the messianic law, uh, meaning the messianic will of God. Law there now steps outside of the Mosaic commandments. We are no longer talking about the Mosaic commandments, but we are talking about a law that is kind of reflecting some of the ideas or the, the concepts of the Mosaic commandments. We cannot forget that. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus is, after all, a Jew, and he's fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. He doesn't. These things don't come from outer space. They're already being prophesied in the Old Testament, and they have a Jewish flavor to them. And he's taking them up, all these Jewish concepts, and he's absorbing them, and he's giving them a, a, a new world meaning. But they come from Israel itself. They come from the Old Testament itself. So Jesus has got a, a, a new teaching about the food laws. Remember, the food laws were crucial. And he says, eh, we don't need them. <laughs> simple as that. Straight. Mm -hmm. Simple. We don't need them. What we need is an internal holiness. Not external cleanness, but internal cleanness. Uh, and really, that's it. He, he can do it. He can, by a snap of his fingers, by some phrases from his mouth, he brings an end to a whole swathe of Mosaic law teaching. Tell me which rabbi ever taught that you can obey the law by directly contradicting and removing its teaching. Hmm. Uh, okay, I think I'll end it there because I'm getting tired of hearing my own voice. <laughs> that's excellent actually brother very excellent uh, take on that so is that it the... well, I could go on forever but I, I, I don't want to bore anybody any more than they're already bored yeah so I think you covered uh, all of uh, all of the objections so what is your conclusion that's yeah, the conclusion is that the biblical evidence is unequivocal. There is only one counter solution to the old covenant, and that is the new covenant. As head of his own people, Jesus represented the new covenant people and therefore the new covenant itself. This is evinced or shown by Jesus breaking the old covenant's uh, commandments time after time after time after time. Amen. Yeah, so that's that's the conclusion of yes, Brother Angus' uh, thesis on the subject of imputed active obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, this this uh, this doctrine is like uh, it's like when you when you deviate from this, it's like it's like uh, a question of orthodoxy to some uh, Reformed brothers, right? Yes, yeah. And it's, like, it's like if you don't believe this, you are unorthodox. Yes. Uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, th so, this is a... Yeah, continue, continue. What, what we need to understand in New Covenant Theology circles is that in many ways, we still have a hangover from uh, the Reformation and Roman Catholic teaching because... Roman uh, reform theology 
although it got rid of the salvation by works poison, mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. still didn't get rid of a lot of its external teaching that was associated with this poison. And one of those external associated teachings was the active and passive obedience of Jesus. That comes directly from Roman Catholic teaching. And it comes specifically from Thomas Aquinas and others. The Roman Catholics, uh, they patented or they gave almost a license to all of this teaching. And Calvin and others absorbed it. They got rid of the bad stuff, but they kept some outward mm. things. And it really hasn't helped. The Reformed theology has come along and defended it because, after all, Calvin and Luther promoted them. And really, it's fighting a losing battle on this issue. Mm -hmm. I, I read about this uh, when they are writing the when they are formulating the Westminster Confession of Faith. There was also there were there were people there were there were people who don't want to put the the active obedience uh, phraseology in the in the Westminster. Uh, uh, sorry. Those who want to put the active obedience phraseology in Westminster Confession of Faith, but at the end of the day, they put it like uh, it's generic uh, imputed uh, righteousness uh, of Christ. But nowadays, uh, in Reform Circle, I understand, like in the in the what is this, the Philadelphia. With with uh, with uh, R.C. Sproul, what what is yeah. that confession? Uh, Are you think about the Philadelphia Confession? No, 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 that, that not the Philadelphia. I mean the with the Presbyterian, with the Reformed Presbyterian. They put it. The Western Confession? No, the uh, the other oh. one, uh, the modern one. Uh, yeah. Oh. I forgot. Uh. <laughs> they put that. Yeah. Yeah. Can't remember. Uh, can, it's in my it's in the tip of my tongue, I can't remember. But uh you know, know nowadays, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. So we will go to our QA if there are other questions along yeah. the way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. Uh we we would uh want to read some comments and for our viewers, if you want to if you want to ask questions, uh, just type in the comment box in the Facebook page. Just type your question. If you are brave enough to ask the live stream, a brave soul would want to ask live stream to our guest yeah, resource speaker. So. Just please do so and just click this uh, this link. Okay, just click that link and you I will accept you in the in the studio to ask live questions. So you read some comments or shout out or hellos as I have read already some uh, in the beginning of the podcast. Maayong Gabi. It's a regular view a regular viewer Henry Esilon, also from the same church of Leonard. So actually, this podcast, most of the viewers are from Apologia Gospel Church of Leonard and Ryan, as in uh, they always hear this. So if you have questions, uh, 
any other comments or questions or if you don't agree or you want to <laughs> you want to say your piece just go ahead and click that uh, link and we will uh, accommodate your questions i have a question uh, actually i came from this uh, persuasion uh, mr harley this uh romans 5 12 right this mm -hmm. the most uh, used text of this uh romans 5 12 to following no? uh, yeah. uh in this uh verse uh Verse uh, 16. Ah, verse 17, sorry. Verse 17. This is the favorite text of the reform, uh, our reform brothers in defending this imputed active obedience. It states here, For if because of one man trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I also, I think uh, from verse 15, uh, if in verse 15, but if the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many die through one man trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the, by the grace of God that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So the the argument actually is, goes like this: If uh, if Jesus Jesus is uh, federal head of the new covenant, just like just like uh, Adam was our federal head, so they are they are they are corresponding Jesus and Adam as one to one one to one correspondence. When uh, Adam disobeyed, we disobeyed. And when Jesus obeyed, we obeyed. So they are putting in that context of the same federal head. And to when 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 Adam disobeyed, we disobeyed. If if Adam obeyed, we obeyed. So if but Adam disobeyed and Jesus obeyed, so they are putting that as one hundred percent correspondence when it comes to the life. Uh, the life and obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, how how will you how will you uh, rebut re re that? How will you repudiate? Well, first of all, Romans five twelve to twenty one does not in any way give us any impression that Jesus was keeping the law. I mean, after all, that is what we need to find, isn't it? We need yeah. to find some statement of Jesus keeping the law. We read of him being obedient. Uh, like we could have added verse, yeah, yeah. verse 19. Well, okay. 19. Uh, <clears throat> fine, fair enough. Jesus was obedient. But he, Paul tells us elsewhere what that obedience looks like in Philippians 2. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Mm -hmm. We don't need to look outside of the cross for obedience. And as I said throughout, even his obedience before the event of the cross was cross obedience in nature because he's doing the same thing. It's the victory of the cross beforehand. 
He's wrestling with all the powers of evil up from the moment of his ministry in, in his baptism all the way up to the cross. It's all about preparing for the cross and then the cross itself. There, there is nowhere where we read anywhere in Paul's epistles or any of the epistles that Jesus came to obey the Mosaic law. So we have got obedience unto the cross to a will of God that's superior to the Mosaic law and outside of the Mosaic law, contrasted to a people who have uh, sinned via Adam. Adam sinned, mankind uh, then sin ran riot in mankind, bringing mankind down with it. Mankind becomes full of sinners. By the way, there's no mention of a covenant here either. The term federal, uh, representing the, the Latin term voidus, is not mentioned. There's no federal covenant here. There's no federal headship. Federal just means covenant. There's no covenant going on here. That's important because when you go to 1 Corinthians 15 as well, again, you would expect if it's Adam in Christ, there would be mention of a covenant. No covenant again. In both Adam, uh, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, no mention of a covenant. Why is that significant? It's significant because covenant theology argues very strongly that Adam was keeping a law that represented uh, the covenant with Adam. But we don't read of a law in Genesis 1 to 3. We don't read of an Adamic law in Romans 5. We don't read of an Adamic law in 1 Corinthians 15, just like we don't read of an Adamic covenant in any of those three passages. In other words, this is all the figment of the imagination of covenant theology. And we have swallowed it hook, line, and sinker, and we need to stop following it. And, and another point I would make is that if really Jesus' obedience is according to the Mosaic law, so says covenant theology, why then in verse in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, does it talk about the time of Moses? And in that time of Moses is surpassed by the, the obedience of Jesus. Why isn't Jesus assumed or coming under the category of the time of Moses? <clears throat> Instead, Jesus is spoken of as distinct to Moses in Romans 5, chapter uh, verses 12 to 21. If Jesus was coming to keep the law of Moses, you would expect to find something here in the context saying that. Instead, we get nothing of the sort. Instead, the law came to do what? In context, the law comes to expose the trespass in mm -hmm. mankind. Because until the law came, mankind was not held guilty. The sin was there, but uh, mankind was not aware of it. So we needed the law to expose sin in Israel so that mankind would be uh, deemed to be sinful also, guilty before God. Mm -hmm. That's why the law was given. Uh, and that's the role the law pray, plays in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. does not play a positive role. Doesn't You don't find anything here saying if Israel kept the law, they could have achieved righteousness. But Jesus came along and he kept the law and he obeyed the law and he, he created righteousness. Nothing here. Instead, the law's job here in Romans chapter 5 
is to expose the trespass. That's it. That's its sole job. Jesus then bears the guilt of the sin of his people because the trespass is exposed. In other words, the law had to come before, and again, it's this idea of time, the time of Moses. It said right there, to the time of Moses. So we've got a chronological, redemptive, historical model here. We get the same thing in Galatians 3, the law was given until Christ. Mm. So why then do we constantly put Christ under the time of Moses? Rather, he came under the punishment of the law to get rid of the time of Moses. Yeah. They, uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, the reform, uh, reform premise of uh, a good and necessary consequence, as they say, just like, uh, you know, the good and necessary consequence when they are saying this, uh, Adam, specifically in verse 14, uh, that Adam was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, as, as written in 14, <clears throat> like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. So if uh, Adam disobeyed, if Adam obeyed, if Adam obeyed, that would be given, uh, that, that, that God would give him the eternal life, right? Continuous uh, uh, residence in the garden, as they say, as they say. So, but Adam disobeyed. Right, but Adam, look, let me just take up the... That one-to-one that, uh, that, uh, -one correspondence. Yes. Adam disobeyed. Yeah, yeah. Adam yeah, disobeyed. Yeah. If he if he obeyed, if he obeyed, just as the Lord Jesus Christ obeyed, therefore, he will be uh, inheriting eternal life forever. But since yeah. he disobeyed, he never inherited. Where the Lord Jesus Christ obeyed and inherited for his progeny. The, the, the believers. That's that's that that's the context of their argument. Yes, I right? and I, I again we're dealing with um, the presuppositions of covenant theology that are taken from Genesis and have no basis. Mm -hmm. uh, where, where do we read, for example, in Genesis that uh, uh, Adam didn't have life and that he needed life? Where where do we yeah. find that? Already not, had. He already yeah, he had. Already yeah. He already had fellowship. He already walked with the Lord in the garden. Why would he need uh, eternal life, as it's called? Uh, and anyway, the concept of eternal life is not associated. They are saying, they are saying it's a probation. For, for, it's a probation. <laughs> of course they do. Uh, they will say they, they have made up a, a whole theology based on... Uh -huh. As Brother Stuart Brogdon says, the white space. In white other space. words, you, can't, you cannot find this in the <laughs> text, but we're going to read it in anyway because it, it has to be, uh, because there can be no other solution. Well, my mm -hmm. solution is just to read the text. Let yeah. the text speak for itself. Do we have a covenant? No. Do we have a law? No. Do we have the idea that G uh, Adam was going to inherit eternal life no 
do we have any concept uh, the uh, the covenant theology idea of a federal head and 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 every no we don't get that we, there's nothing like that going on instead we get Adam and Eve as representative of the whole of mankind they sin against God they were in fellowship with him and that fellowship is broken irreparably broken and uh, the rest is history why we want to read into a whole theology that's not there well that's because we are trying to uphold our covenant theology system our dispensationalist system our progressive covenantalist system uh, i think quite honestly we are in a very refreshing position as new covenant theology practitioners to just allow the text to speak for itself amen amen so I'm just uh, playing the devil's advocate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm aware. Uh, I came from this background. Uh, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid, as the Americans say. Right. I drank the Kool-Aid of uh, Reformed theology. All of it, I devoured. Uh, you know, uh, you remember, is this uh, John Murray or J. Gresham Mason, the one who says without imputed active obedience, no hope, when he was uh, dying. Machen. Yeah, Machen, right? So I remember that without that, uh, it's very popular in the reform circle <laughs> that well, without the active obedience of Christ, there is no hope. So... Well, and, and I, think about that statement. Think, just, just, the, just the statement itself. Yeah. Uh, without the imputed act of obedience of Christ, there is no hope. Really? When I read the New Testament, I see without the cross of Christ, there is no hope. Without the gospel, there is no hope. Without the blood of Christ, yeah. there is no hope. Without the righteousness, I never hear anything about the imputed active obedience of Christ. Yeah. What a mouthful. Is there any hope? Without that, there's no hope. Where? Where do we read this? Yeah. Why do we constantly take ourselves back to Moses and his law? Why always law? Why is it always the law? Why Adam mm. keeping God's law? Why Moses' law? We don't read about law in Genesis until Genesis chapter 27. It's the first yeah. time that the Genesis refers to law. And yet, I mean, we when I say we, I mean evangelicals in particular behave as if that, that's never happened. Rather, quite the opposite, the law is present there in Genesis. I don't see any law. I don't see any yeah. reference to law. I see God giving one commandment, just one, to not eat from the tree of the knowledge uh, of good and evil. The good and evil. One commandment. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if that constitutes a law, I don't know where to go from there. Because you may as well read anything. And you may as well read that there's pink elephants flying around. Yeah. and You could read anything. In. We yeah. have keep to the text uh, and yeah. a strength I really really truly believe as new covenant theology followers we if we just keep to the text we keep strong it's when we via we veer away from the text we get into problems and uh, one thing one thing that uh, that brought me to this uh, to, to, to deviate from this uh, active obedience is you know with due respect to my reformed friends and brothers, uh, it minimizes it minimizes the the cross, you know, 
and it always uh, superimposed the law as the as the central as the central portion where the Lord Jesus Christ should keep and Jesus Jesus is just like uh, a tool to obey the law but he is it's contrary to 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 the new testament itself that Jesus Jesus uh, the cross is the center of our redemption so amen you know this reform our reform brothers are putting this as orthodox as an orthodox uh, question that if you are not holding this uh, active obedience you are unorthodox so i believe that's uh as what you said uh the tendency for our reform brothers is to read the uh, above the text or not not as for the text they are reading not as for the text uh, it's uh i mean i i came scholarly scholarly as maybe but only scholarly <laughs> it's a product of uh genius as uh, reform theology quite very consistent in all of its uh, parts but consistency with their systematics their categories not as per but if you examine the scripture itself you will see that it's not there it's not it's not in the scripture so yes i think you're right yeah we we can't we cannot just because there is a logic and a system there doesn't mean the the logic and the system is correct. Mm. And you're you're right in saying that covenant theology puts a lot of emphasis upon its system, and it's all very logical. Well, let let me say very gently and in love to my covenant theology brothers and sisters. Do you know something? They said the same thing about and still are saying the same thing about Carol Bart's theology. Carol Barth's theology is very systematic. He's got a huge system, far bigger mm -hmm. than most theologians. The orthodox, yeah. Yeah. And had the orthodoxy, orthodox, right? But then you find mm -hmm. out, but, but if you read just even the simplest uh, book by Barth, he's denying the gospel left, right, and center. But he's still very logical. And he slept with his mistress in the same house as he lived with his wife. And he gets mm -hmm. a pass on that as well. Uh, but he's mm -hmm. a very logical man with a great system. Uh, and by all means, uh, it, it's, it's great to praise a man for his system, credit where credit is due. But where that system is defying the scripture, both in terms of content and lifestyle, no, I don't think so. And I mention that because... One of the main reasons I moved from covenant theology to new covenant theology was lifestyle. I was mm -hmm. a guy who was trying to keep uh, the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. I was a guy who was trying to keep uh, the Mosaic law. I just didn't understand it at the time, but I was. I was trying to keep the Sabbath, but the Christian version. Uh, no mm -hmm. work, no this, no that. And I was going through some of the same struggles that Orthodox rabbis are going through just now. Uh, what does the work look like? How does it uh, does it mean if I switch the the light on that I'm sinning because of that? That's physical work and so on. This may seem ridiculous, but John Murray went through exactly the same thing himself. And I'm mm. telling you right now that I come from Scotland, and in the north of Scotland, that is the place where the whole Sabbath rules thing comes to play. Places mm. get down on the Sabbath. I'm not mm. making this up. This is real. 
Yeah. So I, to me, this was a huge issue. And I found myself constantly breaking the Sabbath and I couldn't get my head around this. Covenant theology is correct. The Sabbath has to be observed. But people are driving around in cars and people are going shopping or people are doing this and people are doing that. And it's definitely breaking the Sabbath because it's work. Yeah. Um, so the lifestyle things uh, thing plays in very heavily there. There's no freedom. Mm -hmm. There's no sense of the forgiveness of sin. And above all, there's no sense that Jesus actually is the true Sabbath. And mm -hmm. that Sabbath is rest in Christ through his cross. Amen. All comes back to the cross. All comes back through the cross. I constantly get flung at me uh, the criticism that Jesus was a Jew and therefore he had to come and live as a Jew and do the Jewish things. Uh, yeah. Well, yes and no. He did do Jewish things, but he did them in a new covenant way. He was using yeah. the Jewish lifestyle and method to promote the gospel. I really don't know why we have such a hard time with that, because we read of the same thing with Paul, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, where he talks, I became a Jew to the Jews. Mm -hmm. well, Paul, what do you mean you became a Jew? You are a Jew. Well, mm -hmm. he's telling us that uh, really he's first and foremost a Christian following the new covenant way, and he's going to use the Jewish way to do what? To obey righteousness of the law, Mosaic law, unto perfection, or to share the gospel, mm. to bring in the new covenant gospel? Or are we trying to say that Paul was just keeping all these uh, laws just like a regular Jew and had nothing to do with them sharing the gospel? Because that's the conclusion we have to come to. Why mm. was Jesus going around sharing the new covenant gospel? when he's supposed to be upholding Old Covenant teaching and the Old Covenant gospel, which was the law. The Old mm. Covenant gospel, I'll get my hand in here, gospel, law. <laughs> <laughs> that was its way to life. So why wasn't Jesus preaching that? Why was he always preaching something completely and entirely distinct to the Old Covenant? Why? Why does he go around doing things that no one else did, working in the spirit? Why is he a man of the spirit? Do you see anybody like that in the old covenant mm. era or the old testament era for that matter? No one comes even close. No. Do you see someone speaking with the authority that he does to create new commandments? A new yeah. commandment I give to you. Can you ever think of a prophet saying that? Why mm. is someone who is upholding, supposedly upholding the Mosaic law, saying, I give to you a new commandment. Uh, time out here. Jesus, you're giving to us a what? Aren't you following Moses' law? Uh, yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. How, can, how can the Messiah be giving a new law when he's supposed to be keeping it? Uh, the old law. We need to make our minds up here. It's like we've got a split personality. When it comes to the cross, we are very new covenant. But yes. the rest of Jesus' life beforehand is old covenant. It's like we're in two worlds. We're in the old covenant world and the new covenant world. I, I think by far the, the better way to think of Jesus is to see that from his, uh, his incarnation, especially from the point of his ministry at his baptism, 
he is executing the new covenant will of God. It is that mm -hmm. simple. And by the way, yeah. that explains... <clears throat> that also a text of uh, IAO that to fulfill all righteousness, right, in, in, his, in his baptism. They, they are saying that righteousness of the law. Well, that... Look at the text itself. First of all, it's not just Jesus who's fulfilling all righteousness. The text itself says, Jesus saying to John the Baptist that he and John the Baptist are going to fulfill all righteousness, meaning that the baptism, the act of baptism has to be done. Why? Because the baptism of John was a picture of Jesus' baptism unto death. John was part of that very, very model where both now, both John the Baptist and Jesus are giving a greater meaning to the Old Testament teaching about various cleansings and baptisms, like the, the cleansings of the Old Testament sacrificial system and, and being um, uh, coming out of um, um, quarantine and stuff like that. The cleansing, yeah. Israel going through the Red Sea and all that stuff, all the cleansing theology, well, they're giving it, the two of them together are giving it a totally new meaning. Yeah. And getting a messianic meaning. It's got, that's what it means by fulfill all righteous. It's got nothing to do with keeping Moses' law. <clears throat> if it was to do with keeping Moses' law, why is John going around repent and be, uh, repent and uh, you know, follow the, the Messiah to come. Why is he saying this stuff? Why not just say mm. simply repent and keep the law of Moses? Why is he pointing yeah. everybody to this guy, Jesus? If it's all about the law of Moses, why not make the message about the law of Moses? Yeah. Yeah. That seems to me to be perfectly logical, but yet we keep hearing about this gospel that's got nothing to do with the law of Moses. Uh <clears throat> I don't know about you. Very good. The gospel. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the that's my understanding. Also, I came to that understanding when I became uh, NCT adherence. One thing more that I that uh, brought me to to NCT finally was you know before I I, I devoured all things Puritan and uh, one Puritan, if I'm not mistaken, Thomas Bolton, who said. Uh, we are justified by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith alone. We are justified by faith uh, away from the law, only to be sanctified back to the law. No, again. What, what I mean, what what uh, what brought me to NCT is that in reverse, because it it uh, it made the Lord Jesus Christ just a tool for the law. Exactly. You, why you will be justified, and then you will be uh, becoming sanctified back to the law. So the Lord Jesus Christ is just a tool for the laws, for the law. That that made me. And yes. now I'm becoming more clearer as you explain now this uh, active obedience. Before I, I this 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 is the this was the last straw to my. To my holding the the whole no, I, I as you said no, I still have some hangover with reform uh, theology. This was the last the last straw that uh, I I I let loose 
practice uh, active obedience. So that's a great exposition. And we can talk it over more than more than hours. Uh, rather, now it's two hours and 10 minutes. Okay. And if there are any more questions, uh, no more questions, no questions, no other people who want to ask. But thank you very much, brother. Thank you. John, Angus, Harley, thank you for your time. It's a thank privilege you. that you came to, to speak here. And I hope this is not the last time, brother. <laughs> In the near future, we would again I invite you to, to expound more on, on the subject of uh, other subjects. I think you have a, you have a book, right? Based from this, I've got, I've more got. comprehensive. Uh, you can you can uh, promote your book, maybe. <laughs> Here, go ahead. Um, I, I've written a book on the the subject, <clears throat> Jesus, the Son of Liberty, and it's a new covenant theology response to the doctrine of the imputation of that obedience of uh, of Christ. Um, yeah. So the title itself, huh? Yeah, Jesus is right. liberty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and that's the argument I use. I, I, I give. Yeah, it's more or less. It, it's mm. more or less that title. It's not exactly the same, but it's exactly. Very yeah. Almost. Yeah. Uh, I've written another book that critiques the idea of a covenant with Adam, mm. and I'm in the middle of writing a third book, which shows Paul's theology where he's looking at the his view of under the law mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I am it's it's integrating Paul's theology in a, a deeper sense because I concentrated on the Gospels in the book about the imputation of Jesus obedience in this book I am going to focus on Paul's writings especially the phrase under the law yeah and i'm going to develop it and bring more exegetical depth and then i hope a fourth book will be uh exegeting the sermon on the mount at, wow. at least that section and getting yeah. into more depth again to respond to this idea of jesus coming to keep the law it's all my books are in many ways responding to that same theme of Jesus being the law keeper. And I'm saying, no, he is the, the one who kept the new covenant will of God unto the cross. That's really where I'm coming from. So your books your books are available through Amazon? or yeah. Amazon, the, two eh? books, the two books that I have written are available on Amazon. And the third one that I'm writing, I hope to be finished in a few months. Mm. And that will go on to Amazon as well. Um, yeah. yeah. So oh, it's a it's a hardbound or also with Kindle uh, available to Kindle. Uh, Kindle, yeah, you can get in Kindle. Um, um, <clears throat> the two of them. Uh, one mm. of them is a short. Ver I I try to. I try not to write for academics because I came out of that world, and mm. I'm disappointed with it because yeah, yeah. it's a world into itself, and they don't really help the church as they ought to in my mm. opinion mm. so i write for the informed christian reader someone who's interested in theology mm. who's prepared to dig deeper mm. uh, uh, 
So that's the, the that's the level at which I write because I want to uh, inform that particular reader that you know there's a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> that's yeah. that's why that's the level at which I deliberately write up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we conclude uh, this uh, episode 15 of our podcast. Thank you very much again, Brother John Angus oh, Harley from the USA for this episode. Very excellent uh, pieces and biblical underpinning of uh, this critique on the imputed active doctrine of imputed active obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope our viewers uh, this this, uh, topic has been helpful to you in understanding uh, doctrines of the Bible, whether whether it is biblical or not, as uh, this is our this is our purpose in this podcast, and in the context of the new covenant, we herald uh, the one eternal redemptive purpose of God, Amen. Uh, as it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and the new covenant. I think there are some who are want to ask question. Oh, just uh, thank you. Thanks, according to Quentin. Thank you, brother. Thanks, Jay Angus Harley. Any more greeters? So, thank you again, our viewers, for tuning in for the past uh, two hours and 15 minutes. Today is our longest because of the the treatment of this uh, controversial but uh, important uh, doctrine. Uh, Again, we, we are asking our viewers to subscribe to like our Facebook and uh, YouTube channel and also our listeners, uh, audio listeners to our podcast, audio podcast to our various uh, platforms and like Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, eight, eight uh, major platforms, audio podcast platforms. You can hear uh, again this uh, piece of uh, Brother Harley. Uh, again, there is another one who was greeting uh, again. Thanks a lot, Brother John Harley and Brother R.D. Pineda. A lot of aha moments while listening. Amen. Wow. Aha. Oh, glory to God. Praise God. So, again, thank you very much. And good evening to all of us, to all of you there in the Philippines and in the UAE and all around the world. This has been the New and Living Way podcast. Good night. God bless to all of us. Have a pleasant day. Bye. Bye, brother. <laughs>